That was probably the hardest or one of the two hardest periods in my life because it's super harmful for your confidence as a, as a person, as a founder. And that was my first failure because my first company was successful. And I was like, okay, I found something. Now I'm a Superman that can build companies. And then it's just, you know, you give it another try and it doesn't work. And you're like, oh, wow. Sounds crazy nowadays, but we became profitable just in six months after we started. No, absolutely, because, you know, they say when if you have everything made perfect when you start, this means you started too late. If you start something and it doesn't work out, it doesn't mean you're a bad founder. It's probably just not the right market or not the right idea or not the right time. And I know that there is no way to close a company in an easy, comfortable way. It's just impossible. You will, you will struggle a lot. But it all happens not because you're a bad founder. So just give it another try and try something else. Hey, my name is Mike Perigudev. I'm a CEO and co-founder of Wiz. I live in New York and the company's business is also in New York. What we are doing, we are shifting last mile delivery segment in the US to electric vehicles. And actually, we started the company like 18 months ago, so we're quite fresh on the market. And what we are doing, we are renting out electric bikes to delivery drivers in New York. So those guys who are working on DoorDash, on GrabHub, on Uber Eats, they need some transport to deliver food. And they rent this transport from us, from Wiz. And that's actually how we started and how we're growing right now. We started like 18 months ago and we grew up to 1,000 electric bikes till today. And how old are you? Yeah, I'm 38. Is this your first startup? No, it's not. I mean, it, it's the third one. So my first one was quite a successful company. It was a milk delivery service. It was not in the US. So it was like a subscription-based meal delivery service, which I started in 2014 and then sold uh, quite successfully, exited in 2018. So that was a success, I would say. And my second one was not that good. So I started a company here in the United States in online education space. It didn't work well. So we closed it and then we started this one, the third one, Wiz, which is going pretty well. And if someone wanted to check out Wiz, is there a website or app? What's the best way for them to like just learn more about your company Why you're doing this interview? Yeah, it's getwiz.com. Okay. And it's W-H-I-Z-Z for anyone who's looking. Well, thank you for giving us a kind of like brief overview here. So it looks like it says e-bike rental service for delivery riders. Are you doing that? I'm just imagining because instead of them using their own bikes, when I've even looked at electric bikes, they seem kind of expensive. So I guess they could probably deliver the food faster if they're renting a bike from you and hopefully they're making more money as well. Is that kind of the idea or concept? Yeah, absolutely. So for them, it's not a cost. It's more like an investment because using in such a dense city like New York, especially Manhattan, but also Brooklyn and other districts, electric bike or moped, both gasoline or electric, is the best vehicle to deliver food. And for drivers, they can earn much more if they're using this transport just simply because they can complete more orders. So for them, it's like more like an investment. Yeah. And like you said, electric bike is quite expensive, especially for commercial use for delivery purposes. For instance, our bikes are designed to be able to go 1,000 miles per month. So it's quite a heavy usage. And these types of electric vehicles, bikes are quite expensive. So I, I think a new electric bike for delivery purposes would cost you like $2,000, something like that.
No, that sounds about right. I, anytime I've looked at I'm always surprised. I live by the beach and I keep seeing all these kids with these electric bikes. I'm like, how did they afford these? I'm like, to add that same thought in New York and how those people are, can actually use it to make money versus, you know, just going to a friend's house, if you will. So with this, how did you come up with this concept at GitWiz? Yeah, so actually we were quite lucky to find this segment here. Like how it started, I met a guy who founded the same company in Russia and sold it. And I've met him in New York because he he moved here and we decided to combine our efforts and to build the same company here because we've seen that New York is a perfect fit for electric bikes, like I said, especially Manhattan, because it's nearly impossible to deliver food here by car. And speaking about the whole country, like 70 to 75% of all food deliveries are still made by gasoline cars in America. But New York is quite different from that because, you know, it's a very dense city, like I said. So we've seen that the same model worked in the in, in another geography in Moscow and Russia. So my co-founder, Alex, he's a came to New York and we discussed this idea and decided to to try the same thing here. So, yeah. And Alex, you said is from Russia? Yeah. Okay. And your mic in case anyone forgot. Yeah. And, and so, so do I. So I also was born and raised there and then moved to Europe, then to America, and then we moved. And then, like I said, we, we met each other here in New York. Okay, perfect. Yeah. We'll look forward to getting to your story of like how you immigrated over from Russia. But I guess, yeah. How did you meet Alex then? Did you know him before when you were in Russia? No, no, no. That's a funny story. We never met. And he moved, I don't know, like half a year before than me in New York. And when I came to New York, he just reached me out on WhatsApp. I don't know where he got my number, probably some, you know, friends or something. And he reached me out like, hey, I heard that you moved here to New York. Let's have a lunch here. And we had a lunch and he told me about this idea. And firstly, I decided to invest in the company. So that was the time when I was still building my second company, which I mentioned I failed. But at that time, I was still trying to do something out of that. And so I decided just simply to invest in his company in Wiz. And firstly, I was an investor and advisor. And just only like, I don't know, like five or six months later, I joined as a co-founder and CEO. So yeah, that's how it happened. So what turned you on about his like pitch? What was the pitch like? And just tell us your first meeting. I know you said you, you met him and it's kind of weird that was it through a Russian entrepreneur group or something like that? Or do you get a lot of WhatsApp messages? Yeah, I have a lot of Russian-speaking founders as friends or friends of friends or something. And a lot of them immigrated from the country in the last, like starting from the Crimea, which was in 2014, right? So almost 10 years ago. So a lot of Russian-speaking founders all over the globe. And they somehow communicate sometimes. So it happens, I don't know, somehow like that. Yeah, so we had a lunch. So what caught my attention that he already built and sold the same, exactly the same company in Moscow. And Moscow is quite a similar city to New York in terms of population, in terms of taxi delivery and other services, city services like that. And he just told me some numbers about the market. And for instance, he told me that there are more than 100,000 delivery drivers in New York today. And that's crazy. So the market is huge. Yeah, and then we actually, we had a lunch and I liked the idea, but I, I didn't invest like during this lunch, obviously. We, we had some conversation later and then we had a weekend in Miami and uh, I've seen like, <laughs> he's a really hardworking founder, great guy, because like after partying in Miami on a weekend, he was having a Zoom calls, work Zoom calls at 8 a.m. or something like that on Sunday. And I was like, oh, wow, this, this guy I should invest in. So yeah, that's how it happened. This actually sounds very interesting from Alex's perspective, or I guess you even investing, like 
if you take some type of business like this that works somewhere else, it basically proved that it worked. And like you said, it's the same kind of demographics as far as population density. And I imagine people wanting to order and order food quick and you're able to use this. So it seems like it was almost a no brainer after you got to meet them and I guess become more comfortable and see his work ethic, it sounded like. Yeah, I mean, as an investor, you think about a few things, not only the market and the idea itself, but also about the founders, about their values, etc. You, you need some trust. So for sure, that was a strong sign that success predictor that this model already happened in other geography. So it can be applied in the other one. And with most of the models, it happens like that, like, I don't know, social networks, like, I don't know, e-commerce, deliveries, everything, food delivery. It's kind of almost similar in different regions. So, yeah, this is a huge success predictor, I'd say. If something happened in one geography, it could probably happen in the other. It's not a 100% deal, but it just increases probability. Yeah, and then I was just having some conversations with him and I was like, oh, he's a great guy. We have the same values, the same, you know, goals and feel super comfortable with each other. You know, and that was another sign that we can try to build something together. So was your first meeting, did you all speak in English or Russian? No, it was Russian. It was Russian. Gotcha. So you said that's a great connector too. You can go into business meetings and probably speak in Russian, I guess, if you're trying to pitch other investors, right? I mean, probably. I mean, that works for most immigrants, uh, I guess. So if a guy, I don't know, comes from Latin America, he would probably, if he comes to New York, which is a, probably the most diverse place on, on the on the planet, I guess. So you can find everybody here. So I don't know, if a guy comes from Latin America, he will probably firstly dive into, I don't know, Spanish community or Spanish founders community or something like that. That's kind of natural, I guess. Yeah, that's how we all connect, you know, just having different types of connections. You know, maybe someone's good at soccer, so you start finding people at soccer or, you know, other things like that. So what was your first investment amount and how long did it take you to get comfortable with Alex to go ahead and make that investment? Yeah, it took us, like I said, it took us two or three meetings. So this lunch, maybe, I don't remember, but maybe there was another one, lunch or dinner or something like that, some conversation in WhatsApp. And then we just had a trip to Miami with some other friends. And after that trip, and, and, and while being on a plane, we discussed a lot of these plans, you know, and how he sees it, his vision of that business of where it can bring us. And that sounded really inspiring. So it took me like, I don't know, like a few weeks and three meetings. But the check size was kind of small, so I invested like 75K or something. And did that go to mainly getting the bikes or what was that allocation for? So at that point, he already got some investments from other investors. So it was not like the only investment we had. So it was like he already raised, I don't remember exactly, but probably more than 500K. So it was kind of a live company on a very early stage. Wait, so was it just because he wanted you as a investor yeah so that was like that because like i mentioned i had built two companies before and one of them was quite successful i exited it and i sold it to a strategic investor also in russia and it was kind of loud deal everybody knew about this deal so it was like i don't know like the deal of the year in 2018 or something like that so he heard a lot about my experience so for him it was like a value-add investor Okay. Well, how far along was he as far as like how many bikes or can you give us some before you put in that initial investment? Had he already kicked off the business? Yeah, it was already kicked off. And I actually, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but there were like, I don't know, probably 100 bikes or something like that. 
and like I mentioned, right now we have like 1,000 bikes. Gotcha. That makes sense. Well, so when people, and I don't know if the model has changed since you joined and made that initial investment. I mean, when people are renting these bikes, it seems like maybe they're renting them monthly. Are they holding them in their apartments? Or are they dropping them back off? Has it been the same the whole time or has it changed? Yeah, it's been the same whole time. And uh, you're right, this is a monthly. So it, it's not a kick sharing, like, I don't know, Lime or Bird or something or City Bike in New York when you have Docker station in the streets and people can grab it from the Docker stations and re- return it back. So this is a this model is called sharing model. And our model is a little bit different. It's It's a subscription-based model. So people rent our bikes on a monthly basis. And a month ago, we added weekly tariffs. So right now, they can rent it on a weekly basis or on a monthly basis. But I would say that 90% of our customers are used monthly plans. So yeah, and we rent out this bike and then people just use this bike like it's their own bike. And we don't see the bike. They maintain it. I don't know. They can do it in the street in their own place. Like they they charge it themselves, etc. The only thing we provide actually is the free maintenance. Maintenance or repair or exchange of the bike. So this is a very important thing because it makes it like a hardware as a service. So they rent a bike and then they know that if something happens with the bike, I don't know, a flat tire or some problems with the battery or with brakes, I don't know, everything, or an accident happens, they can just go back to our office with this bike and we will quickly repair it in 30 minutes or we will give you a new bike. So it works like that. And this gives a lot of comfort to our customers also. But like I said, they keep it in their place. Do you still wonder who all those people are visiting your website, but never convert and then just disappear? Discover the game-changing tool that top professionals are raving about, Pearl Diver. Pearl Diver is a cutting edge platform that provides in-depth visitor identification enabling you to uncover valuable insights about your website visitors. By uncovering names, emails, company details, and more, Pearl Diver empowers you to turn anonymous traffic into high-quality leads. With Pearl Diver, you'll supercharge your marketing and sales strategy. Don't settle for guesswork. Dive deep into your visitor data and revolutionize your customer acquisition game. Ready to make waves? With Pearl Diver, you see actual people visiting your website. You get to know their names, emails, phones, titles, and company details. Never miss out on the opportunity to engage with your hottest leads. Pearl Diver matches your email interactions with identified website visitors, providing the insights you need to close your next deal. To learn more, visit pearldiver.io. That's P-E-A-R-L diver.io. See who's behind those clicks today and learn how to connect with them at pearldiver.io. Yeah, I mean, that seems like it makes total sense because even with the standard bike, there's only usually a few things if we're talking like a beach cruiser that can go wrong. But once you start adding more tech and some of these people, maybe they're not handy at all and they don't want to deal with it. So I could definitely see if like I was renting a bike and I'm trying to make money with Grubhub or something or, you know, Uber Eats on a bike. Maybe I'm too lazy or too tired to like try to fix my bike after my normal nine to five and I just don't even want to do it. Or I guess you'd probably drop it off somewhere else that specializes in these and they'd probably be a lot more expensive to take care of. No, electric bike is kind of complicated thing. It's not just a regular bicycle. So in most cases, you just can't fix it on your own. So you have to go to a bike shop or something like that. And like you mentioned, it's quite expensive. So yeah, so for them, it's just easier to get to our office and get it for free. 
Okay. When you, I guess, initially invested, let's just say if it was a hundred bikes and today it's about a thousand, about what, two years later or so since you invested? Oh, just one year, like a little bit more than one year later. Okay. Do you have any other metrics that, as far as like customers would, I guess, did you have about a hundred customers versus like a thousand now? Yeah, I, I can share our revenues. For example, we are quite open here. So yeah, so right now we have 1,000 e-bikes, which means 1,000 customers. Well, being precise, it's not 1,000, but probably today it was like 975 or something like that. So it's around 1,000, maybe 20 or 30 bikes less still, but I guess it will be 1,000 in a few days. Speaking about revenues, it sums up in 3 million ARR annual recurring revenue, $3 million in annual recurring revenue. And we got to this number in 18 months from the inception. And so as far as getting the bikes, are you actually buying them from a different company and then leasing them out? Or are you like leasing them as well and then leasing them out to these guys? Yeah, actually, we do both. We do both. So our model is to get the bike and then we can do it with operational leasing when we lease it long term. Like, for example, we lease like around from our fleet, a little bit more than 1000 bikes. 400 bikes are, we have are in operational leasing, which means we don't own this bike, but another leasing company owns it and they lease it to us for 18 months, something like that. Yeah, so this is one thing how we can do this. The other one is to purchase bikes on our own, but for that we use debt financing. So for sure we need some non-dilutive capital, different types of debt, loans, equipment financing, maybe operational leasing to purchase the fleet. So technically this operational leasing or purchasing bikes using debt is kind of similar idea behind it you just use non-dilutive type of capital to purchase bikes and to expand your fleet yeah could you tell us the differences on those in the future do you see yourself going all towards purchasing your own or all towards operating leases yeah i mean we are open to both methods and being honest we actually didn't have any strategy what, what kind of instrument to use because we were just looking for any instrument because in the early stage and especially nowadays when all the VC market and all the financial markets are down, it's quite complicated to find any type of financing actually. So we were looking like, hey, somebody just give us some money or bikes or something. We were open to any ideas at the very beginning. Right now, while we grew and raised some cash, etc. So it's kind of easier for us and we can choose. And probably we would prefer purchasing bikes on our own balance sheet because this, in this case we own the asset and it kind of help us capitalize the company. So probably that's a preferable method of uh, expanding fleet, but we're open to any option because like I said, nowadays it's not that easy to find capital. So yeah, we're just looking for better terms and open to discuss. Right. And that makes perfect sense. It's almost like trying to find a customer. If you did all one method, all operating leases, and then what happens after 18 months, if those people don't want to lease to you anymore, well, then you don't have a business, right? But at least if you have your own half, but I could understand if you own a hundred percent of them, then you're like, all your capital is kind of tied up in the e-bike, you know? So, and when you're growing, you're just kind of trying to do whatever you can to expand. So if you got the bikes at 50% off, if you bought all cash, then I bet you'd probably raise debt and just buy as many bikes as you could. So Exactly, because right now in our business model, we mostly work on supply side than on the demand side. I mean, I call this a problem nice to have because we have a lot of demand. We have a lot of people in New York who want to rent our bikes. And that's a great news actually for us, right? 
So our main challenge is to expand fleet as quick as possible. So we mostly work on supply side right now. So we are open to expand fleet in different ways because we have a huge demand and we just want to grow as fast as possible. It makes total sense. It's similar to, I've read about like gyms, you know, some gyms, if people don't know, some gyms will buy all the equipment, their workout equipment, but some will actually lease it from a different operating company. And that operating company will actually come in, fix it if there's ever any issues. So maybe some people didn't even think about that. So that's why I like to bring that up because, you know, there's always different ways to look at the aspects of how can I not necessarily do an e-bike business, but if people are thinking, I don't have enough capital to buy whatever machine I want to buy for my business and rent it out. Well, there are different ways to do it, whether it's like operating leases like you're doing, or there's other methods that you can always try to be resourceful and figure out. No, absolutely. And debt financing is another great example. For instance, speaking about Wiz, our goal is to operate 50,000 e-bikes by the end of 2027. And each bike costs us like, I don't know, around, let's say $1,000. So 50,000 bikes, it's like $50 million. And this is a huge amount of cash. And it's much easier to get it as a debt. And in this case, it will cost you only the interest rate on this debt. Because like institutional, I don't know, lenders will give you this 50 millions and you then give them back. And the only thing you pay is the interest rate on this debt. And that's how you can expand your fleet and buy a lot of equipment without huge investments. When you're kind of growing in the beginning and you're not sure and you're just maybe you're doing some operating leases, maybe there's something in batteries that they come up with technology wise that makes them way better in five years. And if you bought all these old e-bikes, if you bought them a hundred percent of them older ones versus you have this new one that can go twice as far and whatnot. Well, being able to have in your business to analyze the risk of like, hey, I didn't buy all of them and then I didn't lease all of them. But having an option either way, I think is always smart. Like even if you didn't mean to in the beginning, you're just trying to grow. But I think that's always a perspective to have as well. No, I agree. That makes sense, especially in the beginning, because when you start, you will probably change everything in the 12 months after you started. So, for instance, we changed our main bike model. So we started with one bike, where now our make model is different. So yeah, it helped us a lot. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's a great point. Because after a couple of years, you feel more comfortable about a certain bike model or manufacturer versus if I want to spend all my capital right in the beginning and bought them all and then found out these are the shitty e-bikes. I'm like, well, now I'm stuck with them kind of, you know, unless you can resell them. And you're saying like, you're getting started. So you don't really know the business model as much. So the more time you have into it, you're like, you know what, if I can, like I said earlier, go to a manufacturer and get these at 50% or 30, 40% off, then I'm going to go ahead and do debt financing because I feel more comfortable about the business. I understand how many customers I potentially have and what other markets I'm going to go into. So right now, are you just based in New York? Yeah. So I personally think that New York is probably the best place on earth to run this business because like I said, delivery is super it's super popular here and there are more than 100,000 delivery drivers in New York. I mean, only working on platforms like DoorDash and Uber, it's such a crazy number. And it's growing because DoorDash and Uber Eats are growing. And every quarter, they actually set another all-time high record in orders and deliveries and revenues, etc. And while they are growing, we will grow like automatically, right? Because to complete more orders, they need more people on the platforms on the supply side, the delivery people, and these people will need our bikes. Like I said, 70% of deliveries in America are still made by gasoline cars. And while I believe it's not efficient, it's not effective, and it should be changed, I understand why it happens, because most of the cities and areas in the United States are 
much more flatter than New York, not that dense. That's why e-bikes fit New York perfectly. So in the beginning of 2023, we decided that this year we will focus only in New York because we consider it our main market and we want to build as efficient and lean processes as possible during this year. So we want this business to be super capital efficient. And also we wanted to provide the best service in the city. So win over other competitors in the space and be the brand number one in the segment. And when we sure we did that, we want to expand to the other cities. And I believe we will do this in 2024. We have like a short list of probably four to six cities where we go next. Mostly East Coast, I would say. So our next targets are probably Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, probably Florida, Miami. We also consider other types of transport, actually. We are not only about electric bikes, we're also about, we're just like, you know, our goal is to build the largest company in the deliveries, last mile delivery space in America. So we want, like I said, we want to operate 50,000 vehicles by the end of 2027. And these are not only bikes. For example, we actually, by the end of this year, we want to try uh, electric mopeds. And with mopeds, I, I think will fit Miami, for example, much better because there are some highways and on the moped, you, you can go on a highway and on a bike, you can. So there is a difference between mopeds and bikes. So, for instance, for some other cities, probably, let's say, electric mopeds will fit much better than bikes. So let's see. Yeah. So did you have anything out? Were you thinking electric helicopters next after that or what? Yeah, I mean, electric helicopters, probably we're not, we're not thinking that far. There are also some automotive vehicles like robots or something like that. I don't know. It's more like futuristic and being a small startup, we are thinking, I don't know, for the next quarter or maximum a year. But yeah, let's see. Maybe after 2027, we will operate some helicopters. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the Mopeds thing does make sense because those can go pretty fast too. You're saying get up on a highway and they're a little bulkier. So it seems a little safer. If you're Miami, for example, versus like you said, New York, where you have to be a little bit more agile and I guess get to these people. So I don't know. Is there anything else you think we should know about GitWiz before we rewind and understand your story of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, probably, I mean, that's it. But probably what I wanted to add that. So what we see in this industry here, this inefficiency in this industry is that 70% of deliveries are made by cars and these cars are gasoline and they're like four wheels large cars and it doesn't really make sense to deliver a slice of pizza or a burrito by four wheel gasoline car and it just doesn't make sense so we really believe that this industry will shift to some other vehicles i don't know three wheels two wheels it probably will be electric like everything else and this is our mission like how we define it to shift this industry from huge gasoline cars to efficient electric vehicles, not only bikes, but just electric vehicles. And this will bring a lot of efficiency and a lot of, I mean, additional sustainability to the market because only DoorDash and Uber Eats deliver more than 2 billion orders annually. That's a huge amount. And like I said, 70% of them by gasoline cars. So we see a huge opportunity here and it will obviously change the economics for the better and the environment for the better. So yeah, that's actually what drives us, this opportunity. That makes an excellent point. I even thought about that. Even if it was a whole pizza, right? It weighs maybe a two pounds. Instead of me riding around a three or 4,000 pound vehicle, I guess that I could just do it on one of your electric bikes. I just thought about your electric bikes too. 
as you actually pedal, does it help charge up the battery too? Or is it like totally plugged in? I don't know if enough people know about that, like how it actually works compared to a regular bike. Yeah, so there are different types of electric bikes. And in some models, you should pedal and the battery just helps you, like gives some additional power. In our electric bikes, you cannot pedal at all, but pedaling helps your battery to work longer. And if the battery is dead, you can always pedal to your, I don't know, charging station to your home or something like that. So yeah, in our models, you can just use it without pedaling at all. But we usually recommend pedaling if you want to use it like for, I don't know, eight to 10 hours per day. Right. Plus you get some exercise, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you for looping us in on Wiz today. And if anyone wants to figure out if they're in New York and are delivering by bikes, that they can check out your website to rent an e-bike, right? Sure. Okay. Well, you said you grew up in Russia. So why don't we go ahead and talk about when you were born and how long you were in Russia before you started making moves over here to the U.S.? Yeah, I actually was not born in Russia. Technically, it was a USSR. That's a funny thing. So I was born in a country that doesn't exist today. Uh, it was in 1985. I don't know. I mean, that was kind of a tough time for the country, 90s, etc. But I think I couldn't feel it. For me, it was just a normal, cool childhood. For my parents, probably it was not probably, but really it was a challenge because, like I said, USSR was like not existing anymore and it was a new country and everything was new and there was an economic crisis, etc. So it was not easy for my family, but for me, it was just a great time, great childhood. I was born in St. Petersburg, great city, a little bit colder. Well, not a little bit, it's really colder and also always rainy. So something falls from the sky, it's either rain or snow, something like that. But no, I mean, it was great. And then when I grew up, I um, was really lucky to have my first job in a startup, in a tech startup. And the guy, the founder of that startup, he actually, he lived in America, in the United States for a while. He got some ideas and then he returned back to the country. It was 2010, 2011. It was a good time for a country for all this political things happened. So it was a time where a lot of startups and tech companies raised, etc. So it was quite optimistic at that time. And I was really lucky to get at this company, which was called Webinar.ru, which was a webinar software. And I was the fifth employee there and I grew with the company. I worked there for like four years and I grew with the company from five employees to like 110 employees when I left. And I was very close to the founder and learned a lot from him. And that was an absolutely great experience. So when some young people ask me for advice or something like uh, how to start a company or something like that, I usually say like if you're not a Mark Zuckerberg or something and you did not invent Facebook when you was 20, I recommend to go and work for a startup for a few years and to be as close to founders as it possible because working with them helps you learn a lot. And then just go and repeat this experience with your own companies. That's how I did that. So yeah, so I worked in this company, Webinar.ru, for four years. And like I said, it was quite successful. So we raised cash from American funds, by the way, Intel Capital, European funds. So at that time, it was possible in Russia. The company was great. It grew fast. But at some point, I realized that and I was a marketing guy there. So I was chief marketing officer. At some point, I realized that I want to build something on my own. And I came to Alex, who was the founder of that company. And I said to him, hey, this was a great experience, great time. But I feel like I learned everything here. So I would probably try something new. 
And he told, like, you know, probably you're right, you should move further, so what are you going to do? And I said, you know, I have an idea, a crazy idea of a startup, so I want to try this. I don't have enough cash or something, but I will try, though I'm very scared. And he said, okay, so no, you you should definitely try. I don't know if it will be successful or not, but it will be a great experience for sure. And then he said, and then, you know, I will keep for the next 12 months, I will keep half of your salary here just to help you to live while you're building your new company. And you will, if you will work like for, I don't know, four hours as a consultant for our company. So it was like his way to support me. And that's how I started my first company, actually. Oh, nice. And so was this all you were still in St. Petersburg the whole time? No, no, no. I moved to Moscow. When I applied to this job, it was in Moscow. So at the time, I raised in St. Petersburg, then moved to Moscow when I was like 22 or something like that. And then next seven years or something like that, I spent there working in these companies and building my own company. And if anyone's not familiar, I knew it's, I guess it's somewhat close. Do you, do you drive or do you fly from St. Petersburg to Moscow? Like generally, if you're going back to see your parents, if you were living in Moscow. In terms of Russian, Russian geography, it's quite close. The cities are, it's a neighbor cities, but in terms of, I don't know, Europe, for instance, it's not that close. So it's like 400 miles between their cities. But yeah, in Russian geography, it's quite close. So usually you, you either fly or go by train. There is a speed train between the cities and you can go like comfortably for 3.5 to 4 hours from one city to another by train. And it's like around 1.5 hours by plane. So kind of easy. Okay. So yeah, so it wasn't terribly, but yeah, you're, you're right. It's funny how close to Europe is the cities where, but then you come to America too. And it's like from Jacksonville, where I live to Miami, where you're going, it's probably almost the same from St. Petersburg to Moscow. It doesn't seem that far, but I guess it's all just perception on how you grew up or where you grew up. At. Yeah, for sure. And flying from New York to LA is approximately the same as how to fly from New York to London, you know, so and, and doing an electric bike there, you'll probably have to charge up a few times. So yeah, doing the high-speed train probably makes the most sense. Well, you said you'd learn a lot from your founder and you said Alex. And just so everyone knows, this is not the same Alex that you invested yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a lot of Russians are named Alex, <laughs> right? Am I making that up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, by the way, these two names are actually different. One of them is Alexander and another one is Alexei. But when you try to shorten it, it's, it's, it's always Alex. So yeah. But yeah, a lot of Russian names are like that. Okay. So what did you learn from the founder at webinar.ru? Like you said, you were like the fifth person there. I can tell you like one thing that I've learned or what I could potentially thought you might learn is just the work ethic or like the hours you put in. Because I mean, you really won't see that at other jobs because you don't know how to work hard or what to work on really at a startup. So I guess you kind of seen it in the beginning help, but could you get like more specific on what exactly you learned from Alex at webinar.ru? No, sure. You know, first of all, marketing. I was a marketing guy, but I, I didn't have that much experience, but I had some kind of, I don't know, ideas and probably some small amount of talent. But he also is a very gifted person in that way. So he has a, you know, strong empathy and he understands what people need. And we were like brainstorming for hours for like, I don't know, dozens of hours on our marketing strategy, on our brand, on how we, you know, go to market strategy, all this kind of instruments. And we were very, innovative in terms of tech stack and marketing like analytics crm systems all these kind of things so we were probably building the most innovative b2b marketing in the country at, this, at that point and that was super insightful and he was like you know i was a cmo but he was the co-cmo let's say let's call it like that 
So marketing is the one thing, but probably even more important, it's a lot of soft skills. First of all, he never taught me anything. He was just working. He actually didn't care if I'm learning something or not. He was just working and I was just near him. So that was how I learned. He didn't do it, you know, on purpose or something like that. He was just chasing his goals and building a company and I was just near him. So soft skills probably. So like how to hire people, how to build a culture in the company, how to, I don't know, fire people sometimes, how to negotiate terms in, in different situations, how to treat investors, how to raise rounds, how to build software, how to, yeah, I, I don't know, how to communicate, how to give a feedback, how to, I don't know, everything, like everything mostly about communications, I would say. And also, you know, I was not that confident at that time and I never actually thought that I would be able to build my own company or something like that. I didn't have it even in my dreams. So for me, it was like a very useful understanding that he's just a normal guy like me and there are a lot of moments when he doesn't know what to do and he just makes a decision. And for me, it was, oh, wow. So he's just a normal guy, nothing special. And he just brave enough to make decisions in, in a point where others don't want to take this responsibility and that's it that's his main job and when i realized it, it it helped a lot and also he introduced me to a tech founders community in moscow and i was constantly like every friday we had a party discussing you know startups and business and drinking wine etc and i was like i connected to many many founders around and i again i've seen these are just normal guys super cool but nothing special they are not not like i don't know gods or something and for me it, it helped a lot to boost my confidence and to believe that I can do the same thing. I'm here with John Austinson. How are you doing today, John? Hey, Austin, doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, thank you for supporting the podcast. And I interviewed John on episode 250 of this very podcast. So you can hear more about John's story and how he grew Franbridge Consulting right here. But in the meantime, would you mind reminding our listeners what you do and what you could potentially help them with? Yeah, you know, we work with entrepreneurs and investors across the country, helping them get into business ownership through franchising. And when I say franchising, you likely think fast food, and yet there's so many other industries out there from home and property services to health and wellness, from kids, pets, the aging population, oil changes, all of these understandable cash flowing businesses that oftentimes are recession resistant. And 90% of our clients end up purchasing an opportunity they never thought about. We work with the largest brokerage in the country, over 600 different franchise companies. Having been a franchise or a franchisee myself, I'm very picky about which ones that we show to our clients, only the best of the best. The great thing, Austin, is it's entirely free to work with us. We're funded by the companies, very much like an executive search type model, so our clients never pay us a nickel. And we do more deals for our clients than anybody else in the country. And what does a typical client look like for you? Two thirds of our clients would be looking to keep their day job. They're looking to get into business ownership, maybe as a side hustle, or maybe they're already a business owner and they can't get their full attention. We work with doctors, lawyers, existing business owners, corporate executives, really a wide array of backgrounds all around the country. As far as anyone who might be interested in your service, is there a best way for them to reach you? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com. That's F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com. For all of your listeners, Austin, we'll also send them a copy of our new book, either audio or PDF version, or they can purchase it on Amazon. But I would love to share that. Our book is called Non-Food Franchise, and we've gotten great feedback since it's released. If you're interested in taking a next step, you know, let my assistant Ashley know, and uh, she'll schedule a call, and we'll discuss your situation and what could be a good fit. Yeah. And I know you've already scheduled a few calls with our listeners. Could you just tell them what that typically is like, like how long and if it's free for them to do? Yeah, we've had a great response from your listeners. Entirely free. 
because of the caliber of folks that we work with, we cut to the chase. We usually spend 20 to 30 minutes on that first call. And then as the next step, that following week, we'll come to them with opportunities, usually around 10 or so in their market, they're available that check all the boxes. And we talk them through those and then uh, make introductions to the ones that seem most intriguing to them. Well, that sounds awesome. And again, if someone was interested in scheduling a call, where's the best place for them to go ahead and sign up? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com, F-R-A-N bridgeconsulting.com, and uh, we would love to engage. So you said you're doing these entrepreneur groups in Russia, I guess in Moscow, and drinking wine, but Russians don't just drink vodka? <laughs> well, I mean, well, at least in, uh, young guys in Moscow, they mostly behave like young guys in, I don't know, in New York or something. Vodka is quite a, quite a rare stuff now. Okay, gotcha. So I guess what you were saying too, and I appreciate it because if someone thinks they're going to join a startup and the founder is going to have sit down meetings with you for 30 minutes every day, it's not like that, right? It's like you learn by osmosis, right? They say just seeing the guy, what he's doing, whether it's talking to people, if you didn't know, you thought maybe yelling at somebody to get something done is going to work, but then you find out you're like, okay, if I really want to get something accomplished, that's not the best way to go about it. So you're saying you're just picking up from Alex, what he's doing in meetings and Sometimes he doesn't know the answer, but he'll figure it out. And I think that's one thing we can all learn from founders is, yeah, all these people that I've had on, I'd say that they're not geniuses. They're just regular people too. But as you gain more confidence, maybe you become in awe of them if you're younger because you're like, okay, I don't have that confidence yet. But as you grew and got more confidence, I guess you told Alex that, hey, I'm confident enough to go ahead and start my own company. And he kind of helped you with that vision. Exactly. So, like I said, he didn't teach me something or something like that. He just worked and I was near him. And, you know, but I was lucky because the vibe in the culture and the company was quite entrepreneurial. And I realized that like a few years after I saw that few more guys who were employees in this company became founders and founded their own companies. One of them quite successful. I even invested in it later. So, yeah, it, I mean, for sure, when you try to, to look for this startup to start with, I would say that it's very important for this company to grow, so it should be successful, but you should join on an early stage to be as close to founder as possible. Because with Alex, we became friends, for example, and right now he's an investor in my company, and we are both running a venture capital firm with a few other guys, so I'm a co-founder in one VC fund, and so we are just friends for the whole life, I guess. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So what company did you actually start when you left uh, Webinar.ru? Actually, at that point, when I realized I want to start my own company, I remember that moment because I was running in the park. I was doing, you know, marathons and triathlons at that point. So I had a lot of long runs to think about my future. And at some point, I realized that, okay, I'm ready to start something. And at that point, when I returned from this training, I opened TechCrunch and was started just reading articles about what's going on in Silicon Valley, what's going on on the planet in the United States in the startup world and I was doing it like for two or three months and at some point I just caught this idea about this meal kit delivery service which were super hype at that period in 2013-2014. Companies like HelloFresh, Blue Apron, played it. you probably heard about them here. So these companies deliver ingredients and recipes on a subscription basis like week by week. So I was impressed with this idea because I was just, oh, wow, this is a great idea. You can just subscribe on a box with ingredients and recipes and you will cook like every day you cook another dinner and, and it's delicious. So I really loved the idea. And I also loved business model, which was subscription based. And I found it 
almost the same as software, like SaaS companies, software as a service, which I was previously in like webinar.ru. So I was like, okay, so in the, my previous company, we sold software on a subscription basis. Here I will sell food on a subscription basis. And this is quite similar. That's how I thought about it. Yeah. And I found a, a co-founder, like not a co-founder, but an investor. So it took me like, I don't know, probably six months from the idea stage to actually starting building this. Yeah, and we started it in, in August. I actually remember the exact date. We started it on August 14th of 2014. So you got funding before then? That was your launch date, you're saying? Well, I mean, I, I had some cash on my own, but it was like, it was very lean startup. So I got an investor, but he put just very small amount of cash, like I'd say less than 50K in dollars. It wasn't rubles, but I don't know, around 50K in dollars. And he also had some kind of facility where we could produce this, where, where we could package food and all that kind of stuff. So he had this place and uh, it helped a lot. Yeah, but we were quite lean and quite aggressive in terms of growth. And that sounds crazy nowadays, but we became profitable just in six months after we started. Well, what was the name of the company? Well, in Russian, it's called Party UD, which means like a food party or something like that it's hard to translate because there is a game of words of census there but yeah is there still a website for it no i don't think so because we sold it in 2018 then we renamed it then they renamed it again so now it's a completely different model so they converted after we sold this company the company that owned it they converted this model this business model into quick grocery delivery model like you know new companies like getty or gorillas flink right now in the u.s so it was the same there so now it has completely another name and completely another business model but what was it initially when you said i, I didn't hear if it was party like p-a-r-t-y or how do you spell it it was like party which means party which is like a party but not like party let's call it Right. I know it's going to get lost in translation. I was just curious, like, you know, okay, gotcha. All right. Well, how many, you said we, like how many people, that's why I was just asking, like, was that your first kickoff date of the website or whatever, you know, when you're talking about August 14, 2014? Yeah, that's, that's actually was the date of our first delivery. And by the way, we didn't have the website at that point. That's a funny story because when we decided to start a company, I set up a date when there will be a first delivery. So we started building it in June like designing the package, finding the facility for that and, you know, ordering food and building all the recipes, etc. And that was in June. And I set up for our small team, like, I don't know, three people or five people. I set up a date, like, so the August 14th will be the day of our first delivery. And <laughs> we failed to build a website this time. So we started without any website. And to make our first 20 sales, I was just posting on social networks, like Instagram and some Russian social networks, like, Hey guys, I just started this company and we deliver these, uh, you know, boxes with ingredients and recipes. Do you want to buy it? And that's how we sold our first 20 boxes. You didn't even have a landing page or anything like that? No, not nothing. So they were just PDF files with recipes and we posted them on Instagram and VK.com, which was the most popular Russian social network at that point, like a Facebook clone. Yeah, so that's a funny story. I posted it there and then... Actually, we had these 20 boxes and we could sell only 12 of them. Some of our friends actually bought it and we had another eight which we couldn't sell. So I was like, okay, so what should I do with these boxes? And I was opening and I opened my friends list on this social network, VK.com, like a Facebook of Russia. 
and I found the friends with most number of followers, which most with most number of friends, and I messaged them that, oh, hey, I can send you this box for free. We just launched, but I would appreciate if you leave a review on your page so you your friends could see it. And they agreed. So and that worked great. And that's how we started working with what later was called influencers. But I didn't know that. Right. Well, I mean, that's perfect to show that you don't need everything perfect in order to launch, right? I mean, I think some people feel like they need everything perfect, but social media is free where you could have set up an Instagram account or a social account that's in Russia, that's like Facebook that, you know, other people could use. Because I think a lot of people just keep delaying because they want perfection when they go ahead and get going. But you didn't let that stop you, which was great. No, absolutely. Because, you know, they say when if you have everything made perfect when you start, this means you started too late. Right. And a lot of those people, they're never going to have that perfect day. It's almost an excuse. Like, I need this to be perfect. I need that to be perfect. But when you started and you had your first delivery on that date, August 14, 2014, you said you had like four or five employees. You're renting out a, like a small warehouse, I guess you're saying. And if anyone doesn't know, can you just tell them like what HelloFresh was or is today and what you were doing, I guess, more specifically? You mean in terms of product? Yeah, yeah. Because some people might not even know, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a box. And in this box, there are like five packs for each weekday, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And there are some ingredients for pre-prepared, they call like pre-prepared ingredients to cook a dinner. And there are five paper recipes with photos and text and explanation how to cook out of these ingredients. And you get this box like on Sunday or on Monday in the beginning of the week. And then you uh, just get this first package for Monday. You get some ingredients from there, like, I don't know, like pasta, meat, vegetables, something like that. And you get the recipe with photos and text and you cook it on your kitchen and you, and you have this great dinner. And on Tuesday, you have another one. On Wednesday, another one. So that's how it works. And you subscribe on this box. So every next Sunday or Monday, you get the next box and there are new recipes there. They never repeat. So it's literally like every day you cook and eat a dinner you never ate before. So that's how it works. Yeah, and kind of bringing it full circle, when you said you first put money into Wiz, I mean, it's kind of the same concept where you saw this work in another geography and you brought it to Russia, right? Absolutely. So I think that really kind of helped you as far as having a model. Because if you just kind of did this by yourself without even seeing that, A, I don't know if you'd really come up with the idea, but B, you had something to kind of like, okay, how did they do it? How might I make things different? And you can learn from, I'm sure you read every single article on those type of food prep companies, if you will, right? Sure. And our company actually was not even first on the Russian market in this space. We actually ended up being the largest company in this niche in the country, but we were not the first one. So, you know, there are two types of entrepreneurs. The first one, they are like innovators. So they innovate something that never happened. As they come up with the idea and, you know, start building it, looking for a product market fit, etc. And I'm probably not that type of guy because to me, it's like too, I don't know, like too complicated or risky or I'm a bit scary or anxious about it will not work or nobody will need this or something like that. So to me, it was easier like, okay, I know I want to build something. I really love building and scaling products and companies and processes. And I see that this thing works in, I don't know, in another region or something like that. So I will try the same. So, yeah. Right. And like you were saying what you were kind of passionate about there, but I didn't hear you that you were like a passionate chef, that you wanted everyone to eat healthier or, or that you're passionate about cooking your own food. Anyone with any business, you can find something passionate about it. Were you passionate about food at all? Or did you just see the like a business opportunity here and 
you're passionate about making the process better and building your own business. Yeah. I mean, in the ideal world, you, you would probably better passionate about both, about the business part of it and about the product part of it. In my case, I was definitely impressed with the product, but in terms of as a customer. So I, w- I was like, oh, wow, if I had a service like that in, in my geography in Moscow, I would definitely use it with my girlfriend. But I was probably even more impressed with the traction of these companies in the United States and in Europe, like HelloFresh and Blue Apron. HelloFresh raised $300 million and Blue Apron raised like, I don't know, two or $300 million also. And that was like a huge hype around these companies. So to me, it was kind of obvious that it's possible not only to build a cool product in this niche, but also to build a quite a large company at scale, because to me, it's also important to build something at scale. And so were all those customers in Moscow, you said, when you first had it? And can you just tell us like how many employees you had and everything when you got started? I don't know. I mean, we started with five people or something like that. We grew quite fast. So after 12 months of growth, we were like probably 30 to 40 employees. Yeah. And actually, we sold the company four years later. So like I mentioned, we started in 2014 and sold the company in 2018. And at that point, there were 250 employees and we had a 30,000 square feet warehouse kind of innovative one. So it was a, well, quite a, quite a big one. Well, now that you've kind of like started a company in the U.S., what is the differences of having one in Russia versus having one in the U.S.? Probably not that much. It's just the U.S. market is really easy to understand how it works because it's quite transparent. There are so many like, I don't know, use cases, case studies, materials, media, you, you know, how you can explore it. So when I came here, I already knew a lot about this market and it's basically I don't know. It's quite similar. If you have product market fit, if you're building something that people really need, then it's quite similar. Of course, there are a lot of differences. For instance, for sure, there are some cultural differences, like how you build a company, how you hire, how you work with employees, what type of culture you're building. But again, it's not that different, at least in my case, because I was like, like I said, I was working with quite a Western oriented founders. And the company I sold, my first company, it was called Yandex, which is a kind of Google type of company in Russia. So it's an ecosystem, like they have search engine plus Netflix plus Uber, etc. And this was a kind of, I would say, Western-oriented company. They were listed on Nasdaq and not that different from Google, I'd say, at that time at least. I don't think it's like that right now, but at that time it was like that. So it's not that different. I mean, culture is a little bit different. For sure, language is different. And also some laws, but in its core, you should find a product market fit. You should find something that people really need. And if you find it, it just will work out. So this was called Yandex Chef? Yep. Yep. So when Yandex acquired our company, they renamed, like, I, I still worked there for one and a half year then after that. And we decided to rename the company like an Yandex Chef. It's like Uber Eats, Yandex Chef, something like that. So yeah, it was under this name. Okay, so Yandex bought, see, so I know I'd heard of Yandex, so that's what I was a little confused by. But when you started, it was called something else. So Yandex is the company that bought you out eventually. And they were like, yeah, if any, anyone's curious, like a Yahoo search or Google search, but for Russia, basically, right? Yeah, but not, but not only search. So they started the search engine like Google, but then they expanded to taxi, to ride hailing. So they have the largest taxi and food delivery business in the country, and also to media services like Netflix and all kind of that stuff. And also 
And they have something else. So it's a huge ecosystem right now. But uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, this, so this is what you're talking about when you kept saying earlier, you know, your first company was successful and got bought out and a lot of people heard about it. It was like if Google would have bought HelloFresh. Yeah, it would have bought HelloFresh. Good call. Right? Yeah. So same kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, for sure, it was like in, ter- yeah, in terms of scale, it was not comparable because the Russian GDP and economy is like, I don't know, 10 or 20 times smaller. But yeah, in terms of, I don't know, scale and money, it was not the same. But in terms of loudness of the deal, it was like if Google purchases HelloFresh. I guess you were excited, but did anything change in your life? Everything changed, you know. <laughs> that was an interesting lesson to me because before the deal, so the deal, it was a one year of negotiations because before the deal happened and before it happened, our company was just another startup on the market and I was just another, you know, young founder on the market. After it happened, I became like a super successful guy who just exited the company, sold it to Yandex, a very loud deal. So that was kind of fun for me because the difference between these two situations was only like a week. And I knew about myself that I didn't change that much. It was the same me, but the community and the media, they were treated me exactly in a different way. And that was really weird because I was like, I made some interviews and I don't know, podcasts. And I just even got some awards (laughs) and everybody reached out to me. Hey, man, you sold the company to Yandex. So can you give us some advice how to sell the company to them? (laughs) It was like every day I answered on my Facebook and my WhatsApp, I was answering these questions, like, I don't know, a few questions in a day, like, how did you do that? Can you help us with that? Do you know guys who make a decision there? So it was like a, like almost a full-time job to answer to this question Right. at that point. Well, now I don't want to be that person, but I imagine they reached out to you. You were just working out hard. And then eventually, like you said, it was a year of no negotiation, but no one saw all of that. They just saw that it happened, right? Yeah. But no, I mean, it was, it, it, it was cool because... I mean, it's it's a problem. Nice to have to answer these questions, obviously. For sure, I was happy to do that. Well, after that happened, were you thinking you were just going to stay in Moscow? Or like, what was your next thought? I stayed in the company in Yandex for a year after that, because this was a part of the deal. So when companies like, I don't know, like Google, let's say, or other enterprises acquire other companies, they usually don't do it in a way that founder can just sell it and leave it. Usually, to get all his, like, I don't know, cash out or something like that, the founders or a team of founders should work, let's say, in Google, like, at least for, at least, usually at least for four years or something like that. But we were negotiating different terms, so we stayed for a year, and then Yandex bought the company to the 100%, because the first part of the deal was only 50% of the company, and after a year, they bought the other 50%, and that's when it ended. That was kind of an interesting year, and I learned a lot. Looking backward, I can I can say that I didn't like working in a corporation and enterprise. It was not that natural for me. But for sure, I learned a lot, and the company itself was great. So I can say only good words about the company. They are innovative, at least they were at that time. And the team was great. The products were great. So the company is great. It was not, but actually, I didn't want to. And they wanted me to stay, obviously, and to work there for a long time. But I decided to not do this. And when we finished the deal a year after, I left the company and that's how this part of my life ended up. And then I decided that I want to build something else outside of Russia to live somewhere else. I tried to live in Europe, in Amsterdam. Uh, It was kind of fun, but I realized that I want to go to something, just to a larger city and to a larger market. 
So it was kind of a very simple choice for me. Like the United States is the largest market in the world. Uh, New York City is, looks great, at least from outside. <laughs> yeah, so I decided, why shouldn't I move there? And that's how it happened. And so you moved there. And did you know anybody when you moved there? You mean New York? Yeah, yeah, New York. No. And the interesting part of that is that I I never been to the U.S. and to New York before. So it was like, I've never been to the United States in my whole life, and I'm just moving there. How many bags did you bring with you? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I brought one bag, and another one is a bag for a tennis racket, because I play tennis. It's important to me. Oh, nice. Do you like Mazlov? Isn't that his name? Who's the, who's the Russian tennis player that's really good? The younger guy, taller there guy. Is a Ruble, I guess there is a Rublev and there is a Medvedev. Mad, Medvedev, yeah. sorry. I try, I, dude, I, I'm trying. It's hard to say Russian names. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, he's a funny guy, but I'm I'm a fan actually of probably Roger Federer, you know, all those classics. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's pretty impressive that you only brought one bag with you too. I mean, other than the second one with tennis racket, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, mean I, I just, that type of guy that I don't like to have a lot of things around me. It seems like I feel like more freely if I have only necessary stuff. And I don't know if it's normal or not. So I, even even speaking about buying clothes or something. If I want to buy something new, I would probably throw something all the way first and then buy something new. So it's always one bag. Yeah, just keeping it simple. I appreciate that. That makes sense. But I guess when you're making that, well, I guess you said you went to Amsterdam first. I mean, you made enough money, I imagine, from the sale that if you wanted to, did you have to work again? Did you make enough money where you don't have to worry about money anymore? So that was my kind of next crisis because, yeah, I earned some cash. It doesn't mean I became the richest guy or something like that. But, yeah, I probably could stop working for, I don't know, 15 years or 20 years. Or if I invest this money wisely, I could probably not work at all for the rest of my life. It would not mean that I will will live some super luxury life or something like that. But it, it could be just normal life and doing nothing, something like that, probably. But yeah, and, and that's kind of, that was a totally new situation for me in my life. And it led me to some kind of a short crisis when I was just lost some motivation and didn't understand what I really want to do. At that point, I decided to make some investments. So the year after I, I left Yandex, I made like around 12 venture capital investments and in other startups. And also I co-founded a venture capital firm called S16 with few of my friends including a founder of webinar.ru, by the way. So we started a venture capital firm. And right now, by the way, it's really successful. We have like $80 million under management and made around 60 deals, have two unicorns in the portfolio. So I'm not operationally involved in this company, in this venture fund, but I'm one of the co-founders. So I spent this year trying myself in a role of VC investor. So that was my next experience. And I actually really liked it. So it's kind of interesting. But at some point, I realized that I probably want to try to build at least one more company in my life before switching to investor role. Right. And I've heard some of it, even just being in the venture role, and I could see this, I mean, never that I've had enough money to do it, but that it does get kind of boring that you're not like boots on the ground. You're always advising and being in a position like you are today with Wiz that it sounds like you get to be more hands-on and still, you're still learning, right? And you're probably having fun in the city that you wanted to move to. Yeah. So why I decided to start another venture and to start it not in Russia, but in another place in more like, let's say, 
ambitious place, it's because I was looking for an experience that will change my personality. I have this reflection like this experience with this meal kit delivery startup, it changed myself completely. So it was two different personalities. It's me before I started the company and me after exiting and selling this company. It was such a boost in self-development. And I was looking like, what can I do next to experience the same boost in self-development? And to me, it was obvious that to build another company in Russia will not be the boost like that. And also, I was kind of concerned about the country itself, like the way it goes in terms of politics, etc. It was quite obvious even at that time that it's something wrong happens there. So But also, like I said, to me, it sounded a little bit boring to build another company in the same region. It was nothing new there. So I was looking for some kind of challenge that will boost my self-development on the next level. And to me, it was like, why shouldn't I move to the US and try to build a company there? And what was that company? So actually, the company, my second company, I failed eventually. It was a company, its name was Pivot. And it was an online education company. It was like an online boot camp for creative professions. So we launched online courses for people who want to be fashion designer or interior designer or a photographer or something like that. So that was the idea behind the company. And the idea was actually beautiful. I really thought that education is in crisis all over the world. So we should change it. We should bring more tech there. We should make it more affordable because it's really very expensive, especially here in the US, if we if we talk about higher education. So it sounded like it should work. And we raised $2.5 million in our seed round and started doing it. And it, it was, by the way, it was before I moved to New York. I started doing it remotely. But it even started in Russia and then in Amsterdam. It was mostly because I was in the process of making my U.S. visa and to to make a work visa, like a talent visa, it takes time, like around a year. So I was just waiting for it. Yeah, and we started this company. At first, it was kind of, it worked well, but then we realized that then we just couldn't scale it at some point. And we, we worked on that like for probably 14 to 15 months. So almost one and a half year, but it just didn't work. So we tried like, I don't know, hundreds of hypotheses, different, products different go-to-market strategies we actually tried everything we could but in the end it just didn't work out and economics didn't work customer acquisition was too expensive and customer retention was not that good as we expected i'm here with megan bennett how's it going megan it is going great how's my favorite podcast host and the most handsome young man I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for stating the obvious, Megan. But we're here to talk about you and your company, Light Years Ahead. I interviewed Megan on episode 177 of this very podcast, and she helped all of our Patreon members on Group Call 3. So you can hear more about Megan and how she helped our Patreon members there as well. So would you mind telling us what you do and how you could help our listeners, Megan? Yes. So my agency is Light Years Ahead, and we're boutique, but we're a national PR firm. We're women owned and we focus on emerging brands, experts and services in the consumer lifestyle space. We're based throughout the US. We're in New York, Kansas City, LA and Dallas. And we really specialize in maximizing media exposure for brands and experts, which can then create more sales and brand awareness and influence buying decisions. 
Our clients range everything from small startups looking to make a name for themselves to large brands that are trying to become relevant again. My agency, Light Years Ahead, we target the very top editors, writers, and producers across all different media outlets. And we've been doing this for over 20 years, which has earned us a very strong reputation with the top media, with outlets like BuzzFeed, Today Show, Good Morning America, Refinery29, Pop Sugar, Forbes, and many more. We can help you grow your brand into a household name. Well, that sounds awesome. So if someone might be interested in your service, what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, the best way to reach out is to email me at Megan, M-E-G-A-N, at lightyearsahead.com. That's Megan at lightyearsahead.com. Or you can check out our services and capabilities at lightyearsahead.com, our website. And I know you've helped a few of our past guests as well with their PR, and they do sing your praises. So hopefully you can help some of our listeners as well. Absolutely. And we love working with your listeners and entrepreneurs who are really passionate about what they're doing. And this is what we want to offer your listeners. The first five listeners that schedule a call with us to develop a PR campaign will receive $500 off their first month of services with us. It's a great deal. Awesome. And one more time, what's the best place for them to reach you to take you up on that offer? You can reach me at Megan at lightyearsahead.com or check out our website at lightyearsahead.com or you can go to our Instagram page at L-Y-A-P-R. Yeah, I guess, would you say it's like maybe like masterclass, but for the fashion community? Yeah, it was kind of like a masterclass, but more hands-on education. So it included like live sessions, assignments, and it was more expensive. So masterclass is like more like a Netflix for education. And that was more like a boot camp. So it, it included not only videos, but also assignments and curators and, I don't know, Slack channels, groups and mentors, etc. So it was like more like a boot camp. And, and it was more expensive. It's called, a, well, I guess it, the website's pivot.ws. I guess it's still working. Yeah, it's still working. We just made it free when we decided to stop the company. We just made it for free. We opened all the materials and, I don't know, everybody can use it now. Who could use that information? You, you said a few earlier, so I guess if they want some free, good information, they can check it out, right? Yeah, exactly. If you're in the fashion space, there is some cool materials there. Yeah. I see a cool picture of you with your neon tennis shoes, though, too. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, probably, <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it would work, right? Because, I mean, like you said, if Masterclass kind of worked, but this is a little bit more expensive, but you're getting more hands-on. I guess this is like online education. It seems like there's always more and more and it's never as easy as it looked. And not that you thought it was going to be easy, but I think it's more difficult than kind of people think. I don't know if there's any other thoughts you have on it before we kind of round up, but as far as pivot. Well, I mean, education space, it's really, really tough. And there are some reasons for that. And it's also really different in terms of regions because of legacy. It's different laws and legacy and history you know, in different countries. So if with Wiz or with HelloFresh, the same model could work in a different region. So with education, it doesn't work like that. So you can't just transport one model to another region and it will automatically work. It doesn't work like that with education. Also, with education, what is really tricky is that it's nearly impossible, at least I don't know any example in the world, to make an education company which will be at the same time education of a good quality also affordable and also scalable so these three points you could not mix it together it's either affordable and scalable but the quality is low if it's high quality and it's scalable 
then it's not affordable, etc. So you can't combine all these three points, and that's the problem with education. When did you shut it down? Like, how long did it take? And what was that realization like for you? That was probably the hardest or one of the two hardest periods in my life because it's super harmful for your confidence as a, as a person, as a founder. And that was my first failure because my first company was successful. And I was like, okay, I found something. Now I'm a Superman that can build companies. And then it's just, you know, you give it another try and it doesn't work. And you're like, oh, wow. You're not as smart as you thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it just harms confidence so much. And also, it's not a real fun to, to talk to investors and to your team, to your employees. And so your investors were losing money. They lost their money. Your team, your, your guys you, you worked with for this like more than a year, they lost their jobs. And your customers that lost, I don't know. I mean, we, we, we made everything we promised to our customers. But anyway, they were disappointed. But they mostly supported us. But anyway, it's not an easy job. So I was lucky to make this decision before we ran out of cash completely. So at that point, out of this $2.5 million we raised, we still had 500K on our bank account. But at some point, I just realized that we will not find a way with this product. And if we continue doing like what we are doing, we just will simply lose all this money and then close the company. So I decided to close it before we lose everything. And that helped me actually to invest this amount also in, in Wiz when I met Alex. And I decided to invest and then to join Wiz. I was talking to my investors say, hey, I joined another company and we now build in Wiz. So should we reinvest this 500k from Pivot to Wiz? And they said like, okay, that's a good, a good idea. So I was lucky to stop the company before we ran out of cash. And that's probably, I believe that was the right decision. But anyway, so my piece of advice here is if you get into this situation when it doesn't work out and you need to close a company and somebody will lose money or something like that on that, you should be the most transparent and open person in the world at that moment. So what really helps is just speaking with people, explaining them everything and just doing everything they ask for, like, I don't know, any reports, anything and being this transparent and, you know, honest with people it really helps so to me my investors were really supportive and i've got a huge amount of support from them like it, it happens just give it another try make something else don't worry it was like that but that was because i was really open and honest and transparent with them yeah i think that's the most important part especially when you're taking other people's money just being honest i think that's what really pisses people off is when people are like lying and saying hey, everything's going great and then all of a sudden there is zero dollars they're like what happened <laughs> it's like Oh, you weren't telling the truth, right? But coming back to you, it also kind of humbles you that you're like, hey, not everything I do turns into gold, right? So maybe that helps bring some self-realization that every idea I come up with isn't going to be great. Maybe it goes back to even Wiz where this guy, Alex, brought you an idea that kind of worked before versus you had come up with, with Pivot. Did you just kind of come up with that idea yourself or were you trying to yeah. <laughs> see? So that came back full circle yeah. that we talked about that, right? Instead of going with a model that's kind of proven already. Yeah, absolutely. So this company pivot was my attempt to invent something. It didn't work out. So yeah. <laughs> you had to pivot. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that, that makes total sense. And thanks for being open and honest. No one wants to talk about the hard part, right? But now hopefully you're bouncing back with Wiz and you know you gave all those investors an opportunity to 
hey, uh, I've already got proof that this is working, right? So that makes them feel more comfortable to put money into the yeah, new that, company too. That's important part to me because they still able to return their money so it's it's still gonna happen and to me it's very important so i don't want to so my credo is to live life in that way that nobody will lose money of out of working with me so that's my goal actually awesome well thank you for coming on and sharing your stories i don't know if there's anything else that you think we can learn or if you have any last thoughts or words of wisdom for everyone who's listening i mean i don't know just, just a small piece of advice probably related to this pivot experience in company that failed I would probably give an advice and, and also just to encourage founders that if you start something and it doesn't work out, it doesn't mean you're a bad founder. It's probably just not the right market or not the right idea or not the right time or anything else. And I know that there is no way to close a company in an easy, comfortable way. It's just impossible. You will, you will struggle a lot, but it all happens not because you're a bad founder. Like I said, it can happen for another reason. So just give it another try and try something else. And you probably could be a great founder. Just make another attempt and it will definitely work at some point. So give it another try, another attempt, another attempt. And at some point you will find something. So failing a company doesn't mean you're a bad founder, I would say. No, because there's so many things out of your control too, whether, you know, like COVID, like how many restaurants had to close in New York, right? That no one would ever thought that. And Sometimes it's outside market forces, but I'd say the most important part is you learning from your mistakes, or even if they weren't mistakes, learning from, okay, I didn't understand that risk enough, right? Or I didn't understand that market enough. And hopefully you bring whatever experience you learned from a former company into your new company. You're not making the same mistakes. And hopefully anyone's listening can learn from your story. And that's kind of why we have them here. So I appreciate you taking the time again to share all that. I guess if someone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you, Mike? It's probably LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. And then I don't know if you want to spell your last name or actually y'all can just look in the show notes or we'll have the show title. But we'll definitely have a link to your LinkedIn where they can connect and ask you how you sold your company to Yandex, right? Ah, yeah. Yeah, 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 sure. (laughs) Just kidding there. But yeah, thanks again for coming on and sharing your story. I think it was great. Yeah, great, great conversation. And yeah, I hope that was kind of useful for someone so thanks for having me yeah for sure yeah so anyone if you appreciated him doing the interview please reach out to him on linkedin and message him and say thanks for doing it and then i guess if you're in new york and looking for an electric bike go to get whiz that's w-h-i-z-z getwiz.com so thanks again mike yeah thank you are you looking for more product-based interviews well i got you Here's five awesome suggestions just for you. Try episode 135 with Jim Kalb of OptiFuse, or an old favorite, episode 24 with Starfire Direct. Another one, try episode 127, that's 127, with Doug Booten, the founder of Halo Top Ice Cream, which I'm sure you've seen in your local supermarket. Another oldie but goodie, episode 34 with Don DiCostenza of Pedigo Electric Bikes. And last but not least, the touching story in episode 98 with Anne Head. And hey, while you're exploring our awesome back catalog of episodes, why don't you consider becoming a Patreon member? We've got secret Patreon episodes in the product industry, like Patreon episode number 29, where I interviewed the founder of Fatheads, or Patreon episode 3, where I talked with Rick Martinez about succeeding in the cannabis industry. Just check your notes below on how to get these secret episodes right now. Now.